Yuma all and warm Pacific greetings. Welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder, a podcast by the Australia Pacific Security College. This episode is a conversation between members of the ANU's Pacific and First Nations delegation to COP27 in Egypt last year. With Australia's newly announced bid to co-host COP31 alongside Pacific Island countries and much anticipation for the outcomes of COP27 to come to fruition, this conversation provides a first-hand insight into the mechanics of a UN climate COP and analyzes what the future of Pacific climate negotiations could look like. APSC would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on Ngunnawal and Ngambri land, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Yuri Marang, I'm Brianna Gordon. I'm a first year PhD student at the Fenner School here at ANU and I'm a Rajiri Gandangara woman. So I went to COP uh, completely blind, uh, really just going in uh, to learn from global Indigenous people and to be a mouthpiece for Indigenous Australians, um, but also as a scientist working in an area that is related to climate change but doesn't get a lot of attention on the global climate change you know, platform um, to try and uh, get some more attention on it. Thanks, Brianna. And hi, everyone. My name is Mahalani. I have just graduated from my Master's of Environmental Management and Development here at ANU. And I currently work at the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, where um, I coordinate a project to communicate IPCC findings with different stakeholders across the Pacific. And I went to COP, I guess, kind of similar to Brianna, really for a learning experience and to understand how these processes actually work, how international climate policy is made, um, and particularly as well to connect with other fellow Pacific Islanders who work in the climate change space. My name is George Kara. I'm a research fellow with the Department of Pacific Affairs, but also the director for the Pacific Institute. Uh, This year, I attended COP as part of the Pacific Scholars uh, with other lecturers here from the university as well as uh, PhD and master's candidate to uh, to, uh, COP. But my main role um, as well as a researcher is working with uh, Pacific regional organizations. So under the uh, mechanism called the One Crop or the Council of Regional Organizations in the Pacific, where we provide technical and political support for Pacific Island countries, uh, leaders who participate uh, within uh, negotiations. And this year, uh, supporting uh, the countries from the Pacific uh, under uh, gender and climate change. Maybe, Melanie, being your first COP uh, this year at uh, uh, Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt, what was your key takeaway from this year? Oh, it's really hard to, I guess, choose from three weeks, which is a really um, intense and awesome learning experience, but it's hard to choose the one thing that was a key takeaway. But one thing that really stood out to me um, when observing the negotiations was the consensus approach to negotiations. And I didn't really understand that before going into COP, but the fact that uh, consensus, which makes sense when you think about it, but it's not by majority. It means that every party in the room has to agree to um, whatever the proposal is and it to me that's such a great thing because it allows it's the only way that I think every nation would come to the table and participate in these sorts of uh, negotiations but at the same time 
I feel that it is uh, kind of remiss for making true progress on climate change when the countries who are actually experiencing the impacts and are the most impacted are getting the same say as the companies, oh, they're not the companies, countries and their companies who are actually uh, exploiting the environment, benefiting from it and causing these impacts. So that was something that I guess stood out to me. Um, and I as well just did some research into it and realised, and maybe George, you could speak to this a bit more, but in the initial rules that were drafted for COP, uh, there was an article that said um, consensus would, there was an option for consensus and then if that couldn't be reached, it would be done by three quarters majority voting, but that has never actually been adopted at any COP um, in the last 27 years. So maybe George or Brianna, if you had any comments or thoughts on that. Um, yes, it hasn't been utilised. The, um, the option to use as a voting, mainly because uh, you only need one country to um, say no uh, for it not to be used. And consensus has been, as you said, the way in which decisions are made within the UNFCCC as well as other UN bodies, but it's the way to be more inclusive. Uh, and the sort of part of my fascination and my key takeaway from it is continuing to study strategies around getting to consensus where, you know, in my study has been building and influencing and reaching consensus. And the role of Pacific Island countries in partnerships with other coalitions, such as uh, the Alliance of Small Island States or coalitions with G77, or even working across the board in working with Australia in trying to form that consensus. And so it's while it is um, an endeavor that is frustrating, frustrating, laborious, it takes time, but it's also is a process that's of huge fascination. And that's why I go in as a scholar to study the strategies, especially strategies of small island countries in which they employ to create this climate consensus. So Brianna, uh, I think we were focusing on slightly different agenda items across the three weeks. So what were your key takeaways from COP? I think my general sort of key takeaway was just feeling very disillusioned by the whole process. It's for one, just extremely overwhelming being there. There's so much going on and so many people. And it definitely, I think we can probably attest to this. It felt like, you know, things were sort of being held together by staples and duct tape. Um, but going from the Indigenous perspective, it really feels like there wasn't a lot achieved um, in terms of tangible outcomes to help Indigenous people right now. And, you know, even within Australia, it is Indigenous people that are are impacted the most by fires and floods. Um, so it just feels like, you know, I probably built up, you know, the UN in my head as this big, magical, smart process where, you know, things happen. This is where the global decisions get made and they get made now. Um, but like having seen the reality of it, things are a lot more, it's a lot slower and there's a lot, there's a lot more like red tape and processes, um, which if we, you know, we kind of, need immediate action given that we have this very definitive 2030 timeline. Um, it feels a little bit like for me just going in not as a negotiator but essentially as just a regular citizen just kind of being like what are we doing? Like it feels like we weren't really making fast tangible action. Uh, so George you were there for the entirety of COP. We left a few days earlier so can you share with us what the outcomes were? 
in those final days? If you look at the news that came out after um, COP and even till now, there's a lot of talk about the loss and damage fund. But the devil's in the detail of what actually has come out of that. While there is an announcement of a loss and damage fund, and this is something that Pacific Island countries and G77, uh, the Global South, have been pushing for for almost 30 years, that there must be some sort of a facility or a mechanism that can address um, the needs of communities or countries with communities that have gone beyond adaptation. That any sort of strategy beyond adaptation is not enough. And that's what we got into loss and damage. So it's taken almost 30 years for something like a facility to come through. However, we must be vigilant that during the negotiations, uh, it was a very much a hard fought fight to try and even get it on the agenda, but at the same time, get to where it is. So the outcome does not precisely give you a fund. It gives us the beginning of the discussion into making a fund, to looking for what it would look like, getting resources, um, the institution, or even start talking about how much money should be there or how where it should be used. So at the moment, uh, it's an announcement. Um, and that's uh, what we saw throughout the whole uh, uh, outcomes as well. Even the mention of 1.5 uh, was even put aside because many developing countries, such from the BRICS, were trying to uh, bring forth language around two degrees. Now, for the Pacific, this is detrimental. To remove any sort of mention of 1.5 means we are decreasing ambition uh, or even action from different countries. So you even have that fight of even keeping 1.5 alive. Even discussions around carbon markets and even mitigation efforts were watered down to um, you know, language that was about we will try and do something next year. And so while it's hugely disappointing that the actions that come out of uh, COP27 give us work agenda for one year and not a work agenda for the next five, ten years, um, it gives us uh, more, you know, I guess, strength to come back next year in Dubai because the work in Dubai will all be about what was not finalized. And this is the area of global adaptation in terms of finance. And of course, the other areas which we all want to elevate from the Pacific and First Nations, such as the work agenda around oceans, around local community uh, indigenous um, issues, as well as gender. Uh, these are the other areas which we look forward to this year uh, in taking forth into Dubai. I just had a quick question on what you were saying, George. Um, do you think one of the risks for the new loss and damage fund could be similar to the 100 billion funding that was meant to flow to developing countries for adaptation and mitigation, where that finance has just never been realised since the commitment was made? I mean, uh, um, during the negotiations, a lot of um, interventions that were made by parties in uh, during this uh, was the example of the Green Climate Fund, that it was an announcement was established in 2001, but it only, in 2010, but if it came to fruition in 2018. It took almost a decade just to get such a fund from announcement to being operationalized to actually communities using it. Now, what we're also finding with GCF, and it's something that uh, that was uh, talked, I mean, pursued within the negotiations, is simplifying these the access for not just countries uh, from the Pacific who have very low 
capacity or have capacity constraints to um, put out, I mean, put forth big applications. But if these grants or finances are to reach our local communities, it's even much harder. So it's about simplifying access so that not only small island governments, but even their communities uh, are able to access some of these. I think you have something similar around that. Yeah, um, the I spent a lot of time in the local communities, Indigenous Peoples Platform, um, and that was a big criticism of current finance models that they, as they exist now, they are going to NGOs and what that effectively looks like for local communities is that they're going to white people to help help these Indigenous local communities and implement these platforms or programs or what have you, but they aren't actually going directly to um, Indigenous people in local communities and part of that is capacity issues, um, especially for uh, historically very underserved communities where you do have, you know, lower literacy and education rates, um, less access to technology or, and just less access to put forth these sort of big, complicated, multi-million dollar proposals. Um, but it is usually Indigenous knowledge that is often, you know, being stolen or being misappropriated by the people who are getting the financing and the people in the communities, the big criticism that I was hearing was that they aren't seeing the outcome of the finances as it was promised. One area I heard and also saw in a lot of um, side events and conversations within um, COP was the importance of Indigenous and traditional knowledge. And this, of course, uh, is a basis around um, the work of the IPCC. Now, Mahalani, you did some work on that um, earlier on IPCC and the potential of uh, indigenous and traditional knowledge to inform such reports. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and agree with what you've both said that in almost every side event that I went to, and maybe I was selective in which ones I was attending, but that was mentioned. And in the IPCC, in the most recent reports, they do acknowledge the importance of indigenous um, local and traditional knowledge, but it's still at the point where they're just acknowledging that it's important, but it still isn't foundational to these reports and so something that we've been discussing and looking to for the next um, cycle of IPCC which is the AR7 reports is how particularly um, we can bring in more Pacific Islander representation into those reports, more research that's relevant to the region um, and also elevating Indigenous voices all across these reports so it's not just mentioned and acknowledged but actually forms the basis of the knowledge we're using to take into these climate negotiations. The Australia Pacific Security College aims to strengthen capacity, collaborations and policy making for a stronger Pacific security. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn and find our library of research, blogs, podcasts and videos on our website, pacificsecurity.net. Our podcast, The Pacific Wayfinder, brings together leading voices on our shared security challenges. Stay up to date on the latest thinking on Pacific security and subscribe to the Pacific Wayfinder wherever you get your podcasts. So part of COP27 or any conference of the parties is on one side you have the negotiations, but on the other side you also have the exchange of knowledge uh, through uh, the various different side events. I mean, I was part of um, this <coughs> exchange of knowledge 
uh, you have would, would have witnessed so many uh, different side events um, for the Pacific alone in their Pacific Moana Pacific Pavilion. There were over 71 different uh, side events, but that's you know part of the other thousands of side events. For you, what were some key takeaways or um, um, key events that came out from uh, from these side events? Um, I, you know, like Mahalati, was very selective in the kind of side events that I attended. Um, I typically stuck to uh, indigenous-led or youth-led events, um, but I did go to like a really excellent. Uh, side event on climate justice and it was um, in particular there was a gentleman um, from Port Arthur in Texas I believe not not our Port Arthur that (laughs) threw me for a loop the first time I saw it Um, but basically talking about how as a uh, African-American man his community in the area was massively impacted by uh, corporate pollution um, and how in his community they're fighting for justice um, from and you know essentially reparations from uh, this corporation, I forget, it was a, a multi-billion dollar corporation, but I forget exactly which one. Um, but just getting to be able to hear from people that I would never normally meet, you know, in Australia or in my day-to-day life um, and talk about their own experiences and talking with um, Indigenous people from Africa about how their fire management techniques differ to Indigenous fire management techniques in Australia um, and that really highlighting that the uh, importance of Indigenous knowledge to that specific region because our ways of managing fire was much different um, and how it is important to put uh, those knowledge holders in a platform like this where they have the opportunity to speak freely and openly and have a receptive audience. How about you, Mahalani? Thanks, Rianne and George. Um, so as you mentioned, there were so many side events happening at one time. So um, to paint a picture of what it's like at COP, you have the negotiations happening at um, at any given time and there are several meetings happening. George, maybe you know exactly how many. Uh, and then on the other side, you have the pavilions where there are about, I think, you know, almost a hundred different pavilions um, and booths and they all have events going at the same time. So every morning you're kind of trawling through the agenda and seeing what sticks out to you and what to attend and it can be definitely quite overwhelming because you constantly have this feeling like you're missing out on something but I guess you just have to go to the one that is most interesting and be grateful you're there and for me it was quite similar to Brianna where I spent a lot of my time at the um, Indigenous Pavilion at the Australian Pavilion the Youth Pavilion and also the Moana Blue Pacific Pavilion and just there were so so many aspects that stood out to me but one that came up a lot at the indigenous pavilion was around carbon markets which is something that I have an interest in so I was really keen to hear different views on this and there was a lot of concerns from indigenous communities across the globe on the efficacy of carbon markets uh, and the unintended environmental and social um, negative consequences of these that I think is really critically important to be discussing because carbon markets form such a big part of how nations are planning to meet their NDCs, so their mitigation targets. And there was a, you know, a few people who called it out as another false market solution and really um, a lot of conversations about refocusing solutions away from economic and market-based approaches to one that really put first the needs of environment and society Um, as opposed to prioritising the economy to make these changes and to uh, 
yeah, create the solutions to tackling climate change. Absolutely. One of the big areas that we do see in the pavilions are, are climate solutions, you know, climate innovations. Uh, we see it in the technology around renewable energy. Uh, you know, that's been showcased. Uh, but something that uh, when I look at across all these pavilions and just to see what comes out from, especially our part of the world. Uh, remember, this was an African COP. And uh, there was a lot of um, activity around um, uh, water, um, around um, food security and food systems and agriculture. But we find that from our part of the world is that where we come out strongly is climate justice, that link of human rights to climate change. Of course, because we have many great campaigns coming through from the Pacific, such as the fossil fuel uh, um, Non-proliferation treaty. Non treaty on fossil fuels, as well as the uh, I, I say ICJ, you know, um, led by Vanuatu. Um, these these are just some of the many different um, initiatives born out from the Pacific, including um, Australia, initiatives that are driven by not uh, not just governments, but are driven by individuals and local community. And what we saw also this time round is that it wasn't just the youth there or, or, or local communities pushing this. They were actually teaming up with philanthropy, like such as the Bloomberg uh, group from uh, New York, you know, or banks from Switzerland. You saw the diversity of these um, uh, initiatives coming through. And that's something that um, I think when we look forward to now that the bid has been announced of um, Australia and the Pacific, that, you know, what else can we see from our part of the world when we come to that, you know, COP uh, hosted by, and that's something that I'm looking forward to. Yes, we continue on the key work of pushing mitigation, pushing finance and pushing adaptation. But the other area which is sidelined in the negotiations is climate justice. Now, of course, it's very hard to bring that in the negotiations, yet this is the platform of which we are able to tell that story the initiatives and the actions that need to happen. And um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well on where this can be progressed, especially under an Australia Pacific COP. Um, and I think as well, if we look within Australia, like in the Torres Strait, the Human Rights Committee found the Australian government to be violating their rights, their cultural rights by failing to adequately act on climate change. And so Climate justice, as you mentioned, George, Pacific Islanders have been leading and spearheading a lot of um, the movement for climate justice. And COP31 is a really great opportunity for Australia to partner with them and truly listen to them and have a yeah collaborative process on how that COP should be run. Um, but just going back to what you were saying, George, I was curious as to whether informal negotiations and in any formal text, climate justice has been referenced yet? Well, no. Uh, in fact, climate justice hasn't been uh, adequately addressed. Uh, one way in which this has been undertaken, of course, is through the Vanuatu, uh, which is a great example of, um, I'm, I'm going to segue a little bit here. Remember, this is a movement that was started by uh, masters, or, uh, sorry, Bachelor of Law students. They were not initiated by government. They were initiated by a class. Um, a classroom of um, law students who said in their class, what can we do, you know? And they found this instrument called um, uh, um, um, the International Court of Justice and Opinion. 
And so what they did is these students wrote letters to their individual governments and to eight governments, and one government wrote back and said, yes, we will spearhead this initiative. So it was actually started by university students. And I look forward to when our ANU students think of something creative such as this to take it all up. Um, and one instrument that has been undertaken is through that um, uh, ICJ, but also um, through other means. And now we have here within ANU the special rapporteur um, of uh, climate change and uh, human rights, which is through uh, Dr. Ian Fry, uh, who is actually listening throughout this whole year, trying to collect as much as possible to create uh, a report and various different initiatives, which will be elevated up to the Human Rights Council uh, to try and find this link and, and affirm this link of human rights and climate change. And hopefully there we have uh, ammunition for it to be discussed within the main climate change, UNFCCC. And just just going back to what you were saying earlier, Brianna, about, you know, COP definitely has flaws and the fact that Egypt um, were having human rights issues when we were there with their climate activists. It's also encouraging to know, and we saw this a lot at COP with the civil society organisations that were there, that there are other means and other so many other actions that people are taking to progress action on climate change, like the ICJ advisory opinion, which I believe is going to the UN General Assembly sometime in the near future. So would encourage listeners to advocate their government to uh, approve this going through the General Assembly. No, I do think I agree that civil society really is the one that sort of um, spearheads a lot of the innovative discussions that we need to be having and should have been having having for a long time. And it's in those community-led organisations um, outside of states and governments that I think are really on the forefront of these things. And a lot of the time, the official avenues um, who are actually doing the negotiations are playing catch-up. Because, of course, these discussions of climate justice have been going on for years and years and years. And loss and damage, you know, it's been, as you said, fought for for 30 years and we're only now just getting something. Um, but that also like, you know, made me, it makes me quite disappointed in a lot of states where, you know, you should be more, um, proactive in climate change and not so reactive to issues that have already, you know, been arising and are already causing havoc in people's lives and causing deaths. Um, in like, for example, with, uh, Australian Indigenous people, a lot of the Australian Indigenous people that went, uh, were from civil society or from universities. Um, and the Australian government really did take advantage of that. They had a lot of uh, Australian Indigenous people speaking in the pavilion and, you know, giving various events, but the Australian government didn't monetarily support that in any meaningful way. Um, so, you know, quite happy to have us talk and have us there as representatives. And it's great. I want us them to encourage us and give us a platform to use our voices, uh, but they aren't necessarily so great at actually facilitating that. One of the questions that has been asked is whether Pacific Island countries will support Australia's bid. Um, we've heard with the uh, proliferation of the fossil fuel treaty, uh, countries like um, Australia, I'm um, sorry, Vanuatu and um, Tuvalu are supported. And there was a comment from the um, climate change minister that there was conditional, the support was conditional. Now, of course, yes, I mean, uh, that is the view of Manuatu that it is necessary. It, the support is conditional on what it can work to. 
And I think that's what the work will be in the next two to three years. Because hosting COP is not you show up and you organize the meeting and, uh, you know, and you see, hopefully you get a consensus at the end. It actually takes at least two to three years before you get to a COP. And when it does happen, you have another year or two. So it's a big enterprise. I think when the, um, uh, the French uh, undertook the um, uh, presidency, it was a billion dollar exercise. So it is quite a lot of investment because it's not just the facilities, it's actually the diplomacy. Uh, the way in which country like Australia and its partners from the Pacific will work together to provide um, some form of diplomatic practice or stage uh, or process that can lead all 200 parties of the UNFCC to create um, a consensus. Now, what that looks like, I'm looking forward to the work around studying indigenous or local or um, um, knowledge from the Pacific about uh, how you create that consensus. Because that will be one way in which to showcase the world the type of diplomacy that's found on this side, you know? When presidencies do host, they bring in their own form. Like when uh, South Africa uh, hosted uh, the Durban uh, presidency, they introduced what's called an Ndaba format, uh, which is uh, clearly meant for chiefs of villages. Um, and they brought in that, and that still continues to be a part of the process. So there is that cultural aspect of, um, uh, of diplomacy that's brought in. And so we're looking forward to having those discussions leading up where not only Australia, but all countries from the Pacific, uh, organizations and institutions can be a part of that conversation to create that diplomacy. Um, of course, there's also the resources and the funding. There's the training for people, the capacity for, uh, because it's not just one or two people, it's actually facilitators in each meeting. You saw that, um, UNFCCC, there's 50 meetings going on at the same time. You need to have a representative of the president in every meeting. It's the shadow diplomacy of flying to individual countries or working with other countries to try and leverage out disappointments before you get, I mean, disagreements before you get to those final two weeks. So it is a lot of work that comes through, uh, but it's something that cannot, you know, that's impossible. It is possible, but it's also that brand of diplomacy, the work behind the scenes, um, but also uh, the capacity that will come through. And then, as I said again, where I'm very, uh, very much looking forward to is the showcase of the diplomatic culture from Australia and from the Pacific Island countries. What that looks like, I think that will be an exciting space because I think we have a lot of great research here at ANU. Uh, with First Nations, but also areas such as oceanic diplomacy in the area around um, uh, indigenous diplomacy that's now starting here. Um, and so it's a way of uh, building that type of um, innovative way of, of building and reaching consensus uh, leading up to COP. A fairly similar approach for what I would like to see for indigenous Australians. Um, you know, I obviously can't speak for all indigenous Australians, but in my perspective and sort of what are the vibes that I've been picking up is that again the the support of Australia hosting COP31 is conditional. Um, I think 
it's not something that has been typically done in the past, but there's been talks around it um, of a, like a specific diplomatic position for the Australian government to Indigenous people. And the way that we work diplomatically with Pacific Islands is how we should focus on working with our individual language groups and actually tr- and treating them almost like, you know, like nations within a nation and giving them the respect of, you know, having a say on how things run rather than just telling them, telling us, you know, this is how we're going to do it and you can come or you can't. Um, because I, you know, this is an amazing opportunity. We could have elders and representatives from pretty much almost every language group in the country and have them be like, I would like to see it build almost as co-hosts. So, you know, it's a co-hosted cop between Australia, the Pacific and Indigenous Australians and have Indigenous Australians voices and viewpoints on climate change, not just be an extra accessory or something that is, you know, um, spoken about at pavilions, but really be part of the presidency and have that being, you know, in the underlying messages of all of the work that we do if we were to host it. Um, and it's also just a, a beautiful opportunity to showcase our culture. Um, at you know, at COP, I got to speak with Indigenous people from lands that you know I've never been to, and I've never spoken with anyone from there before. And you get to share in our amazing culture, and we can talk about the individual. We have such a wide variety of practices and languages, and we can really share case showcase that with people. And because um, I think you know, Indigenous Australian history is not something that's widely discussed around the world. And I even met some you know lovely American people, but uh, used the word Aborigine, um, which immediately I'm just like, oh, and then, but it's like, it's not them, you know, being offensive. That's the word that they're taught to use um, and have us, you know, be elevated onto an international stage. Like we got to see we, like, um, like with other indigenous groups and become a world leader in terms of our on climate change and how we manage things like our fires and forests. For the latest analysis on climate, environmental, human and national security trends in our Blue Pacific region, you can read the APSC blog at pacificsecurity.net. Our contributors come from across the region and include policymakers, practitioners and academics. If you would like to contribute, get in contact with our team through our website. But of course, I mean, to be on the international stage, you've got to have climate action. You've got to have ambitious action on the ground. Uh, and it's not just for Australia, but also Pacific Island countries to have those ambitious actions and what they can be. Maybe, Melanie, you want to comment on what those ambitious actions could be? Big question there. There's, I mean, I think first and foremost is for the Pacific, the priority of mitigation, because like keeping 1.5 um, alive. And I think, you know, the fact that there is still time to keep to 1.5 by the time COP31 happens, we'll be past 2025, which is the year that emissions need to peak. But still keeping the ambition there, you know, even if we have overshoot of emissions, so we temporarily surpass 1.5, there is potential to bring it back down. And that is the temperature goal that the Pacific will continue to strive for, even if it does go above 1.5. And I think there is just no room to let go of 1.5 because once you let ambition slide above that, then, you know, if we're saying, oh, we'll aim for two, then it goes to oh, 2.5 with two being ideal. Um, so I think 
one priority will definitely be holding to the 1.5 degree target. And as has been mentioned, loss and damage as well, ensuring that the work program for that keeps up and that we establish the finance for that to start flowing as soon as possible because it is very much the case that Pacific Island nations are experiencing the impacts of climate change now. And 10 years for a fund to be set up is just not adequate to deal with the reality of what is being faced at the moment. So I think those are two key areas. I mean, there's a whole lot of different agenda items that need progressing. And just on your points before about the presidency, that was something I didn't realise at COP was how much power the presidency has to dictate the agenda of a COP. And um, I just really didn't understand that before. Was that something, Brianna, maybe you had realised or observed as well? Um, it was sort of something that I, I definitely don't think I realised going in. Um, but once I was sort of there in the way that people spoke about it and, you know, the different countries. And I also spoke with some people who had worked for the uh, British, for the UK presidency who were in LSIP um, and speaking to them about their role. That I do think it is a, you know, there's a reason countries want to host because obviously it's very expensive. If you didn't get something out of it, you know, not a lot of countries are going to put their hand up and be like, yeah, we'll, we'll sacrifice that. Um, so I think there is definite uh, political ambitions and power that comes with with being the country that's the presidency because you do get to dictate what happens. And even like really intangible things that you're in charge of as the presidency, like um, whether or not it's deliberate, but with the LSIP, I think um, our conversations were really hampered by the administrative situation that we were under and the sort of uh, resources and rooms that we were provided. And, you know, things like um, even though if it's not deliberate or it's not like an actual this is the, this is what we're going to be discussing, um, but by hamstringing certain conversations or just making it difficult for, you know, real conversations to flourish, that's an element of power that you have in controlling what gets discussed at COP and how successful those discussions are. And I think that's also why it will be important with COP31 in partnership with the Pacific that they have a very prominent role in the actual presidency of it and that it's not tokenistic. But also something that um, has been suggested, and I, I really do believe in it, you know, working within the gender program and in the climate negotiations, one of the things that came through in those discussions was that why don't we have a male and a female um, uh, um, uh, president? Why can't we have two, you know, so that to bring that sort of balance? And these are suggestions within the, um, uh, that working group. And it's something that we need to think about uh, while the gender program within climate change negotiation is about gender balance, about equal numbers of men and women at the table, but we also need to be a bit more transformative and go beyond that we need to look at gender equal, equal, equality. Absolutely. I actually saw a graph, and maybe it would be different for this COP, but a gra graph from COP26, and it was showing the difference between men and women. The speaking time they had in plenary sessions, and it was still 75% men that were speaking in plenaries, and this was just last year. So, yeah, absolutely. So many different avenues for making change in small but very significant ways, I think, for COP31 and all future COPs. What are you going to do this year leading up to Dubai? Um, well, whether or not I end up going to Dubai, what I think... You will. Okay. <laughs> um, what I think is uh, a really key thing that we can immediately start implementing is to increase the capacity for more Indigenous Australians to go and 
have it through the government, have it funded, um, have the individuals funded as well as their trip, um, as well as building up capacity in terms of actually understanding the UNFCCC process. You know, it's it's complicated, it's labelled in jargon and legalese and all this sort of stuff, um, and you can't just pick up a random citizen and plop them in and expect them to understand it. Um, so, you know, we've got a year to, to build up capacity um, in people. And I think it'd be a great opportunity for the Australian government to really demonstrate that they are on board with forefronting Indigenous Australians in the climate change discussion. And I'd love to see more Indigenous Australians at COP. How about you, Mahalani? I don't know if it's necessarily in the lead up to, to Dubai per se, but just more broadly in climate change engagement. One thing I heard from a fellow youth advocate at COP was just the kind of responsibility to use your voice or my voice in this case and to put aside your inhibitions and reservations of you know how you're going to sound or um, if you're going to say the right thing and just stand up and show up for the causes that you know are really important and so that was something that stood out to me and I'm going to try um, carry out over the next 12 months and for example I was talking about you know, doing some advocacy, maybe even within ANU, seeing if there would be potential to endorse the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty within um, the circles here. So just different routes of advocacy. And I think that was really just inspired from all the incredible people at COP, particularly civil society and fellow Pacific Islanders. And how about you, George, from the negotiations side? Well, um, the work leading up to Dubai is great. I mean, so much to do, but I can think of it in different ways. So through my research and the research and collaboration with others is progressing that work around climate security, the progression of the work in supporting uh, climate change gender focal points. We've been uh, Because we were working with the negotiators around gender, we'd like to um, be able to continue that support uh, and the work that they uh, not only do for countries, but also in the way that they um, uh, negotiate in these negotiations. Part of that also is thinking bigger uh, and broader into having um, some form of initiatives or program that supports um, Pacific and Australia diplomacy in working together in the bid leading up to COP21. The university has a responsibility in that space and so do us as researchers. Um, we have the great network of being researching in this place, having the network within the Pacific. Uh, this is an opportunity that we should all be working together in. Um, beyond that, it's also um, continuing on uh, working with students. Um, like we have this great opportunity of going to COP uh, and bringing along uh, First Nations, but also Pacific scholars who are currently here at ANU, we'd like to continue this. Um, as you know, we can hear from uh, and listen to the interactions and your comments about what you saw at um, the negotiations. I mean, you all were pulled in uh, to speak at various different events, even at the very, you know, 30 minutes before it begins, you became those voices uh, for those who could not be there or um, you know, you were able to make that representation. And it's important that uh, we continue to um, empower um, our students here at the Australian National University to be able to do that. And we can do that through our learning about the structure or the theories of what happens during negotiations or actually taking our students there. Um, because that continues on what we're hoping to build is this alumni of 
climate scholars from this part of the world uh, in understanding, but also to have confidence to speak in these processes, whether it be in negotiations, whether it be in side events, and of course, the many people from this university that become leaders uh, and have to speak with authority in climate change, uh, this is one way to do that. So I'm looking forward to um, taking on that further uh, throughout the year leading up to Dubai. Key issues to look out for this year is climate finance. Because it is um, the halfway before the, um, uh, what's the term that they use? Because uh, it's halfway through the global stock take, we look at uh, what has been uh, not only implemented or where the work has been since the Paris Agreement leading up to 2025. 2023 is very essential net. And so there's a big focus on climate finance, but that does not undermine the other work that we need to elevate in gender, in ocean, in uh, uh, indigenous uh, policy, which needs to be, uh, and climate justice, that needs to be at the same platform as mitigation and adaptation and finance and loss and damage. So yeah, a lot to do this year. Thanks everyone for the great chat and thank you to the Pacific Security College for having us here today. For